now after a significant period of time, the time of the captivity is over, which was actually numbered by the prophets down to the exact number of weeks and or years. And Daniel got a sense of that in his reading of the prophecies and began to pray for a restoration. And then God brings them back. This is the last chapter in the significant bit of history we have. It's that time that takes us from Isaiah through the, through the point of Nehemiah and God restoring them. That's the wrong slide. Let's go to here. Yeah. Now we're going Nehemiah leading up to Jesus. 538 BC is the first return. So 722 was the final date of captivity. So over 100 years, or not quite 100 years. Now they're coming back from where they were. And the first is under Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, who didn't write a book, Ezra and Nehemiah, who did write books, these are people that were led, uh, often with the sanction of the king of Babylon, but led waves of people back to the, to the land of Israel from, from Babylon. Zerubbabel was the first. He was a governor. Uh, during his reign, or during, and it wasn't really a reign. He wasn't king in that sense. He was just a representative of the king to go back and rebuild uh, Jerusalem. And he goes back, and one of the main things he does is rebuilds the temple. This is, it would have been destroyed in the conquest. Zerubbabel kind of coordinates that, re restoring the temple and, and bringing that back together. Haggai and Zechariah, remember Haggai is prophesying about people who've lost, the, you know, they're cared about their own homes, preparing their own homes, and they left the temple of God in ruins. So he's encouraging them to get back to that building. There's complaints in here of what we've lost about God and how could God let this happen to us. You're going to read some of that language. And you've got Malachi, who we think is the last book and he's not, but he's the one that really calls them back. Not just you don't just come back to the land and to be free again. You've come back to God and you need to be God's servant. And he calls them back to the covenant, back to when you're not tithing, you're stealing from God. That language is what we find in Malachi but there's a promise in Malachi about a day coming when God's going to turn the hearts of the children of the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. There's a wonderful thing that I think is not just for Israel during that day. It really begins to hint at the new covenant and God being our father and God restoring our hearts beyond just our performance and our work for him. Malachi, Haggai, Zechariah are during that same time of Zerubbabel bringing them back, trying to get the temple rebuilt, trying to refashion a society. And that, that's that part of it. And then by 458 B.C., there's another return. Another group come with Ezra. And you can read about it in 2 Chronicles. He's bringing a group of people. Ezra's not a governor. He's a priest. And he's come back as the temple has been somewhat completed. But there's still work that needs to be done. And he's aware that the people, though they might have come back to the land and now they've rebuilt the temple, the people are still distant from God. And one of the things Ezra does, and you can read his story. Again, his story is put somewhere in the Bible like ahead of Psalms somewhere. So you forget this really comes so much later. And Ezra, they read the whole law so that the people can be remembered what Moses had declared to the people and the people just rend their hearts and garments because they realize how unfaithful they've been to this law and they repent. And there's a time of renewal and revival. But as we said, this is God inviting that stray puppy, this, this great rescue out of the darkness, closer to the light. They're still getting back to something and they're feeling this horrible shame and reproach for not fulfilling a covenant that is... Paul said they were never going to fulfill. You, you, that was never meant to redeem. It was meant to hold out the hope of a Messiah, the hope of redemption. And throughout all these prophets, whether it's the pre-exilic prophets, the exilic prophets are now, these are the post-exilic prophets all sitting around that exile. 
There, there's so much messianic language in here. There's the hope of the Messiah coming, the sufferings of the Messiah, and the glories to follow. The thing Peter said they couldn't understand. Isaiah talks about Jesus being crushed, the Redeemer being crushed. And what does that mean if he's going to lead us to captivity? And so there's a whole lot of confusion about who the Messiah is so that when he comes in the first century, he's not recognized for who he is. He, he's not. And they, and they never expected the Jewish hope of a Messiah was never a God incarnate figure. Even when Peter says, when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And they think you're Moses or Elijah. And who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, wow, that's not a Peter thing. That's way too brilliant. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, but my father in heaven. The one thing Peter gets right. And Jesus says, hey, it wasn't you. It had to be God. You're not that bright. But even when Peter is saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he's not saying you're God incarnate. They don't know. Jesus doesn't tell him that until the upper room. I am the father of one. You've seen me, you've seen the father. Now he said, and I don't even think in the upper room they get that. I think that's so beyond the Jewish mindset. God could hardly be in their home, much less God inhabit a human body. And God actually live on the planet with us and eat at table with us, and travel in a boat with us. And they were, it was incomprehensible to them that the God whose name they couldn't even pronounce would be inside a world with us. But the prophecies are there. In the Old Covenant, there's language that talks about this servant David, who is the Lord, who is actually in there's even that prophecy is clear back in the Psalms, that what the Lord says to my Lord, what, 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 Lord, what, what Father calls his son Lord? And David is calling Jesus Lord, even though he's his progeny. And th there's all this language that is preparing us for the coming of the Messiah. At the same time, yes, the people are being chewed out for being unfaithful to the covenant. Because in fact, they were. And God was inviting them back to that space of realizing how unfaithful you've been. Again, not to beat them over the head, but to show them how faithful he has been in their unfaithfulness. That's the Psalm 78 story. That's the Acts chapter 7 story, as Stephen retells it, that God has always been in the world to redeem. God's not been the angry tyrant just waiting. He's not been the cop behind the billboard with the radar gun. I caught you now. Bad stuff has to happen to you. That's how religion wants us to read it because it wants to manipulate our behavior by putting God behind the, the billboard with the radar gun. It's a song I sang in Sunday school as a little kid. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, for the Father up above is looking. Oh, we always said in love, but we didn't mean it. We knew we weren't meaning it. It was, so where have your hands been this weekend? Where have your eyes been? And, you know, God has seen everything you've seen. You're thinking, oh my gosh, what did I look at that was bad? And then, oh, yeah, I do remember that. And it goes, I just is no end to that. God was not that even to Israel. He wanted them to know they couldn't be faithful to this covenant, but if they would keep coming to him and loving him, he would love them. And he was preparing them for the day that Galatians 4 said the fullness of time came into the world. Ezra comes back to call them back inside that relationship that they had missed and lost and, and, and calls them back to the covenant and reads it. And there's this great repentance and, and they restore the temple and they rededicate it. And then Nehemiah comes later. Nehemiah is another governor. He comes in 432 AD. So we're looking over a significant period of time from 538 to 432, so over 100 years of returns of God restoring Israel, bring it back. Boy, God just is not in a hurry. 2,000 years since Christ was here and we still haven't culminated this world. God's just not on our time frame. When it feels like you, God's slow. That's just because we're fast. 
God does what he does over major periods of time. It's amazing to me, this unrelenting patience of God. Some hundred years later now, Nehemiah brings the last group home from captivity. And this is even after Esther now. We have Nehemiah. He's come back and he's a governor. He's replacing Zerubbabel, uh, what Zerubbabel did. He takes that same role. And his task is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They've had rebuilt the temple. They've come back to settle. His deal is to rebuild the walls and begin to establish the kingdom again. A sense of their nationhood by the protectedness of a wall around Jerusalem, which defines a city. So he's doing that. There's great conflict that goes on with the, the, the story of Nehemiah has been often retold, sometimes as an allegory. And I, I always hesitate to use the Old Testament scriptures as an allegory that proves something. But Nehemiah, as, as, the, as Song of Songs might be a good illustration of the church and Jesus' bride and bridegroom, Nehemiah might be a good illustration of how the enemy resists the thing God wants to put in our lives. And we can learn from Nehemiah how to resist the call of the enemy and the, 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 to give up, to not be perseverant, to, to be distracted from the things God's asked us to do by other wonderful opportunities people bring to our lives. And there's a lot of that story in Nehemiah. So that becomes a very encouraging book as well. It's that book that brings the, the, the old covenant story to a close. It's that book on which now we've had the story of a group of people that, were, that was just an individual whom God began to reveal himself to Abraham. And his great story is to learn to live by faith. And he becomes the best example in the New Testament of what it is to live by faith. It was somebody who was pre the law. That's why that's so significant. We are children of the promise. We're not children of the law. And the, the, the constant bantering in the New Testament letters of churches who started out with promise ended up living to law again. The whole Galatians 4 argument, are you, are you children of Hagar, children of the bondwoman, or are you children of the free woman, are you children of Sarah, who don't live by the bondage of the law, but live in the freedom of life? That's a great analogy that Paul pulls out there. And then he says something like, for the children of the bondwoman will always persecute the children of the free woman. That's great encouragement for if you're trying to learn to live in the freedom of God and the doctrine police and the legalists are all over you. You, just, you know, it's always going to be that way. There are people who love the law and people who love the law love to export it and they don't like you not living to it because misery loves company and so they're going to be on your case. I know. I was one of those for a significant part of my life. I get that. Now I want people to live in the freedom of the, of the promise. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't be dumb enough to use your freedom as an occasion for the flesh. But don't give up your freedom just because we get lost in our flesh at times and we get lost in our ignorance. Don't take the right of every person to hear God and follow him away because some people say, thus saith the Lord, and do hurtful and destructive things. For that reason, don't take it away from other people who genuinely want to learn to live in that reality and listen to the voice of the Lord and be sensitive to his life as he unfolds among you. Abraham's the example of that. Then through Moses and the law and the covenant, the religion God gives his people, I believe, to win them out of. That religion so much reflects what's already in Canaan of that day, but it's a step better. Then the, uh, during the time of the kings, it's adjusted even more. We're getting a better view. The Psalms and Proverbs, Song of Songs, it's given us a better view of who God is, his heart. This is a loving God after all. Loving kindness is better than life is the resounding thing. For all the shame and murder people and stuff that's in Psalms, the resounding thing is your loving kindness is better than life. And you're the shepherd and I shall not want you to lead me into safe pastures and lead me beside still waters and you restore my soul and go through the valley of death and you'll be with me. 
That's new covenant language salted in the old covenant. That's God pouring out his heart saying, this is the father I want to be, the shepherd I want to be. And then there's all the abuses of that. One of my favorite lines from, from Eugene Peterson's translation of the Psalms, he talks about the shepherds of Israel. And he said, they're just sheep taking turns pretending to be the shepherd. Oh, I think that's such a great language. I think that's what we have a lot of today in our culture, shepherds. They're, they're, they're sheep taking turns pretending to be the shepherd. And we have the good shepherd now. Doesn't mean we don't have great gifts in the body of Christ to teach, to facilitate, to help other people get part of the journey, to equip and facilitate. That's what God always intended people to be. He wanted, even back in the old days, Joel's prophet, when, when Moses prays for the elders. This is one of those redemptive flow things, redemptive movement. Moses prays for elders. He's just overwhelmed by trying to solve everybody's problem. He prays for these elders. So they start prophesying. And some elders in town, some people in town start prophesying who weren't part of the prayer. And they come and tell Moses, hey, these other people are doing it. We got to stop them. Here's Moses' heart. I love this. I would that all God's people could prophesy. I would that all God's people could hear God. There's God's heart. Joel, the prophet Joel, He's the one that says that day's coming when your young men will dream dreams and your old men will give prophecies and everyone will hear me. Th th that becomes the prophecy of Joel, that the day, that day's coming. Peter stands on the day of Pentecost, quotes Joel and says that day's here. We all get to know God and hear from him. Yes, we're going to make mistakes. Yes, people are going to be claimed to following him who are not. Yes, people like Jim Jones and TV evangelists that create lies to suck off people's money. Yes, that's going to happen. But just because some people misuse the hammer to hit people over the head doesn't mean we don't get to ham the hammer to drive the nails in our life that God wants to drive into our life. Do you get that? The abuse of something doesn't negate the reality of something. The whole construct of the old covenant, this story is God the rescuer inviting us into an ever more confident relationship with him that could never be fulfilled until Christ takes our sin and shame to the cross. And now it's obliterated in him. Now we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. What Paul, what, excuse me, Isaiah could never do. What David could never do, what Moses could never do, you and I get to do any moment we want to. I can wake up this morning and draw near to him. I can drive away from this place if I'm alone in my car, which I won't be, but if I was, I might take a moment to just draw near. God, I love you. Whatever from this study you meant for me for be good, breathe it into my life. Help me learn the things that count. Forget the things that don't. We get to draw near with confidence to God anytime we want to. We, 2 Corinthians says, get to behold him with unveiled faces. What Moses never knew, David never knew, Isaiah never knew, Ezekiel never knew, we get to know. He or she that's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist, and he was the best of all that came before. This story of redemption is the most amazing story in the world for us to understand. And like I said, start at the end, work through to the beginning, find out how this whole thing has moved toward this revelation in Christ that transforms all of our lives.